Uh, the title of my message tonight, or this morning, unless you want to stay through, I can make it longer. Uh, the title of my message this morning is Marriage is Hard. Marriage is Hard. Uh, by way of introduction, I want to give you just a few quotes from some people you may recognize, others maybe not. What a world of trouble those who never marry escape. There are many happy matches, it is true, and sometimes my dear and my love come from the heart. But what sensible bachelor rejoicing in his freedom and years of discretion will run the tremendous risk? Mark Twain. Marriage is a wonderful institution, but who wants to live in an institution? Groucho Marx. Keep your eyes wide open before marriage, half shut afterwards. Benjamin Franklin. When you see a married couple walking down the street, the one that's a few steps ahead is the one that's mad. <laughs> Helen Rowland. I don't believe that there is anyone of marriageable age, say from the early 20s and upward, who is in a situation that is completely free of challenge in regard to their marital state. If you're married, you know that marriage has its unique challenges and temptations. If you're single, you know that singleness has its unique challenges and temptations. And within those very broad two categories, there are many more specific situations, many different situations of singleness, many different situations of marriage. And I'm not aware of anybody in any circumstance that is in a challenge-free situation. Let's imagine the best possible situation of marriage and the best possible situation of singleness. Let's say we just came up with this test, this elaborate assessment matrix to determine the quality of marriages. And we run that assessment through everyone here at Heather Hills. And the marriage that comes out on top is Jack and Jill up the hill. I just made them up. Let's say they have a really great marriage. The best of all you lot. Do you think it's challenge free? Of course not. If you ask them and they were honest, which of course they would be because they have a really great marriage, they'd say, we have challenges too. Imagine a single person. Let's say that he or she even uh, is gifted by the Lord in the area of singleness. They're content. They're living a productive, fruitful life. But he or she would be the first to admit there are challenges. I know I don't have to convince you of this. We know this. Everyone, no matter what your situation is, faces challenges. And the general teaching of Scripture regarding how a Christian is to live, no matter what your situation, applies to it. And it is useful. And I am very thankful that we are working through a book that is very useful. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, like all other chapters, 
in all of the books of the Bible, is profitable, is useful in all kinds of ways. There's so much profitable instruction in here for all of us, no matter what our situation is. But there are certain situations having to do with our marital status that present particular challenges. And the Bible is also not silent about these challenges. In fact, here in our chapter, in chapter 7 that we're working through, Paul very purposefully raises and teaches about several particularly challenging situations. He identifies them and he gives instruction about them. And and notice uh, in verse 8, for example, he says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say. We covered that last Sunday. Verse 10, to the married, I give this charge. Verse 12, to the rest, I say. And this morning, I want us to consider what God's Word says about these more challenging, specific situations with regard to marriage. But let me warn you about something right from the get-go. If we just look at these instructions as we work through chapter 7 over the next few weeks, without taking into consideration the larger context, if we just kind of dissect these verses today like we would a frog in a biology lab, if we just kind of probe and, and push things around, all we're going to find is just a bunch of rules to follow. And we're going to miss the bigger picture of what God is saying. What Paul is saying through the the Holy Spirit's inspiration in 1 Corinthians 7 is considering a much larger reality than just marriage. And it's one that Paul has been repeating throughout this letter. And, And that is this. As Christians, we belong to God. And because we belong to Him, we've been brought into something that has a much bigger scope than just this life and the affairs of this life. It's Christ's kingdom. And Christ's kingdom is both deeper and realer than this world is. And it extends beyond this world, doesn't it? So if you find yourself living day-to-day, only in the reality of this world. And your only framework for your life is what goes on in your lifetime, in your day-to-day. You'll be looking for happiness here. And if you don't find it, you'll keep searching about for it. Trying to find it by changing your circumstances A lot of people do this, don't they? Restlessly, even desperately, people are out and about seeking a new job to find happiness, seeking a new location to find happiness, seeking a new marital status to find happiness, seeking something different. And Paul is reminding us here as Christians in the book of 1 Corinthians, don't think that way. Don't get drawn into a narrow way of thinking. And even big subjects, important subjects, like marriage and singleness, need to be held in their place and not elevated to some place that they were never intended to be. So, no matter what his or her circumstances, a Christian can be marked 
by calmness, by contentment, because your hope, your happiness is found in Christ and in his kingdom. That, brothers and sisters, is the ground underneath of which all of 1 Corinthians 7 is built. And I would say underneath of which is all of the Christian life. And, and when God and his glory and his way becomes the measuring line of our life, then we can find joy, which the Bible speaks so much about, particularly in the New Testament. We can find joy and happiness in any circumstance. Doesn't matter what we're in. Now, we're going to look this morning, and we're going to look briefly. I'm going to cruise through the text. It won't be long. We'll be done. But just before we look at three particular challenging situations in our text this morning, having to do with marriage, I want to deal with something in these verses that may cause you to do a little bit of a double take. In fact, maybe even as we were just reading the verses, it may have caught your eye. Did you notice? Verse 10, to the married I give this charge. And then what does it say? Not I, but the Lord. And then verse 12, it kind of says the opposite. To the rest I say, and then you see in the parentheses, I, not the Lord. You see this a few times in chapter 7. What is Paul saying when he makes these little expressions? Well, the answer is not complicated. It's not simple. Uh, it's just something that can throw you for a loop if you, if you don't know what's going on. It, it's not like when Paul is saying, this is from the Lord, that that part of Scripture is inspired. And when he says, this is I, not the Lord, then Paul's just giving his own opinion and you can do whatever you want with it. That's not what's happening here. All of this is written under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Every word. It's all God's word. It's just that in places like verse 10, when he says, not I, but the Lord, he's referring to an actual saying of Jesus. Something that Jesus was known to have said when he was here on the earth. So in places like verse 12, he's continuing to give instruction under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, but he's not referencing a teaching of Jesus specifically. Does that make sense? So when he says, not I but the Lord, he's referring back to the time of the Gospels, to when Jesus was here, the teaching that Jesus gave himself. When he says, I, not the Lord, he's still speaking as an apostle, authoritatively, under the inspiration of the Word of God, but he's not referencing something that Jesus said specifically. That's the distinction. Make sense? All right. Just a couple other things quickly to lay the, the, the introduction here. Uh, first, remember this, because this is, a, this is a, a temptation to us when we come to passages like this, and, and like last week. These teachings are addressed to the church as a whole. The entire church of Corinth would have been gathered together when this letter from the Apostle Paul was read. They would have been assembled just like we are this morning. So the wrong way to be listening to the message this morning would be to say, well, I'll just listen to the situation that applies to me. We're a church family, right? 
So what affects some of us affects all of us. So regarding of where you are, what situation more directly applies to you, we all need to hear all of these words today so that we as a body, as a family, as brothers and sisters, we can be more aware of one another and our needs. We can be as a body more caring for one another. We as a body can love one another with greater Christ-likeness. So don't fall into the trap of tuning out what you think doesn't apply to you. Okay? It all applies. A second thing, last Sunday, Pastor Greg taught about singleness. And I just wanted to say, because it was like three verses, right? And then we're moving on. I just wanted to say, we're not finished with the subject of singleness or marriage. Um, in fact, over the next few weeks, we're going to focus a lot more attention on both of these areas. Those who are single and should remain single, and what does it look like to, li- to live to the glory of God in that way. Those who are single and should pursue marriage, and what does that look like for those who want to live to the glory of God. So there's more teaching coming on both singleness and marriage. And in some respects, last week and today, we're just kind of introducing, we're just kind of getting into the subjects. So this morning, let's think a little bit about marriage and three ways that I think Paul demonstrates it can be hard, it can be challenging to the believer. The first one I want you to see in verses 10 and 11 is harder than average marriages, harder than average marriages. Now, obviously, every marriage has its challenges. But Paul is addressing here in verses 10 and 11 harder than average marriages. Look at verses 10 and 11. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So if the marriage is good then the question of separation or divorce uh, isn't going to come up, right? So we're dealing with something different than that. The Bible's instructions for average or better than average marriages is clear. We want to live by those instructions. In fact, we try to faithfully teach those instructions here. We regularly focus on what God's Word teaches about marriage. In fact, you have another opportunity to do that, as was mentioned earlier, at the vertical marriage event on the 20th, which you can sign up for out in the lobby. But what about harder-than-average marriages? In that situation, Paul says, from our text, the wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. In other words, Paul is teaching faithfulness and perseverance in the face of a less than happy marriage. Now, divorce, as you know, we've talked about before, was remarkably easy and remarkably common in the Roman world. And and Paul is saying to the believers in Corinth, you should be different. In fact, the words here, although the words for separate and divorce 
um, here in verses 10 and 11. These are different Greek words, but they're also synonyms in the Greek. So they're not talking about different ideas. So we shouldn't read our Western idea of, of marriage separation or legal separation into the text here. When it says separate, it means the same thing as when it says divorce. And the general rule that Paul is, is teaching here, he's reminding us that Jesus taught, not I, but the Lord, the general rule is that there should not be divorce between believers. Okay, this is who this is written to. There should not be divorce between believers. You can read what Jesus wrote or taught, what Jesus wrote, what Jesus taught or preached about with regard to marriage and divorce in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 12. You can read about it in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verses 2 through 12. And you can see it in Luke chapter 16 and verse 18. So how does this happen? How, how can the Christians in Corinth, how can the Christians in Indianapolis be different from the world around them, even in harder than average marriages? Well, here's how. We live for God's glory first and foremost. And we live being supported and encouraged and taught and cared for by a local church, by our brothers and sisters. Paul says there is a way to walk in these situations, and it looks like faithfulness and perseverance. Now, um, as we go through this text, I know you're going to have all kinds of questions, and I'm going to try to answer as many as I can along the way, at least what I would perceive would be questions. Uh, maybe there will be some others that pop up in your ABF classes, and that's good. Search the Scriptures out. In my best understanding of Scripture, Jesus speaks about a situation in the Gospels where there is sexual unfaithfulness in a marriage between believers that permits, not requires, not requires, permits a divorce where there's been sexual unfaithfulness. But Jesus gives that as an exception to the rule. And Paul here is stating the rule, not the exception. If a divorce takes place other than what's permitted, the spouse must not remarry. In fact, if he or she does, Jesus calls that what? Adultery a very serious sin. Now, in our culture, I just want to mention, we have a tool called legal separation. Uh, do I ever counsel a woman to separate from her husband? Do I ever counsel a husband to separate from his wife? Yes. There are times when for safety's sake, in situations of abuse or in situations where healing needs to take place, sometimes, temporarily, we will suggest legal separation as a tool to help marriages hopefully reconcile. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is talking about divorce. And I should say that we have seen times, even since I've been here at Heather Hills, when sweet reconciliation has been able to take place 
because spouses have been obedient to verse 11 and neither remarried. And so they were able to be remarried to each other. Now that is rare, but that is beautiful when that happens. So I hope that this is clear to to everybody. Jesus' teaching from the Gospels, which is affirmed by Paul, is that under normal situations, Christian husbands and wives should not divorce. If they do divorce, they should remain unmarried. And I want to mention again, there is an exception to this rule that Jesus also taught relating to sexual unfaithfulness in marriage. However, even in that situation, I will tell you that we pastors always try to counsel toward a couple's staying together and working through it, if at all possible. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, it is possible with God's help. That's the first difficult situation. Harder than average marriages. Number two, look at spiritually mixed marriages. Spiritually mixed marriages. Verses 12 through 16. Look at verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever. Now jump to verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever. Now before we get into the rest of the text, let's just stop and ask the question, How did that happen? How did this come about? I don't believe that Paul has in mind here a believer marrying an unbeliever. Because that is outside of what I think he's talking about here. That's something that is not permitted in Scripture. Although it happens, and if it happens, I think these verses apply. But what Paul is talking about here, I think, is probably what happened in Corinth when you had people who were lost, who were pagans, and the gospel comes to town through the preaching of the Apostle Paul, and one spouse responds to the gospel and the other doesn't, or at least hasn't yet. And as a result, you have a potentially really challenging marriage situation. Now, things might not be terribly hard in the marriage because maybe the believing spouse lives in a way that's very gracious toward the unsaved spouse. That doesn't always happen, but it can happen. I know of several situations where it happens. And maybe the unbelieving spouse may be polite and accommodating even encouraging. They may like some of the changes that they see in the saved spouse. There may be a sweet love and commitment in that marriage. But most often, when one member is a a Christian and the other is not, it introduces a strain in the marriage. Now, by the way, if you're the believer in a situation like this, Don't unnecessarily add to the strain by pushing the other spouse. Peter has a very clear word for you, if you're interested, and it's over in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If you're in that situation, 
Read what Peter's advice is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for you. How do you should conduct yourself in, an, in a situation like that? Now, sometimes in a spiritually mixed marriage, the stress is considerable. There's an obvious and, and sometimes a widening gap and distancing between husband and wife. And so Paul addresses this potentially challenging, hard marriage situation with instructions about the two possibilities. Look at verse 12 again. To the rest I say, not the, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Here's what he's saying. God is at work in that home. And the presence of a believer in a home where, where the lost are is a great opportunity for God's grace in that home. Now, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. That's Paul's point if you drop down to verse 16, where he says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So he's not saying that if you're in a spiritually mixed marriage, that because one spouse is a believer, it automatically makes the other one a believer. Paul's not saying that. He's saying that can happen because the gospel is located in this home. So it can happen. But it's a basic principle that's seen through all of Scripture that God's grace extends through the original recipient to others around them. That does not mean, as I just said, the spouse or the children are saved automatically. It's simply setting out a view of the grace of God at work through a believer toward others in the home. Here's another way to think about it. What Paul is saying is that that house where there is a spiritually mixed marriage, maybe children, that house has been, as it were, claimed by God. And God is there. It is a place where God is at work. It has been set apart unto God, and he is at work. And you know as well as I do, now this is not automatic, and this does not happen in all cases, but, but you know, and even if you would look around and poll this church family right here today, many times the gospel comes and takes up root in whole families. And it, that's the way it's always been. 
It's not uncommon for whole families to become followers of Jesus when one is first implanted with the grace of God. That does not happen in all families. That does not happen in all situations. But you can look around and see that it is a pattern that God has been doing at work through history. Now, reading these words would be very surprising to anyone who knew the Old Testament law. Usually, the unclean would defile the clean, right? Not the other way around. That's the way the Old Testament law worked. But Paul is arguing for the opposite. Now, again, the, let, me, let me be really clear. The words in the text here where it says made holy, the spouse made holy, the children made holy, does not mean that they are saved. The word made holy is literally the word sanctified, which we know means set apart. Okay, that's literally what the word means. It does mean that God has put the believer in a place and has put the unbelievers in a place where there is the potential for there to be continued salvation spreading through the witness of that saved spouse. That's what that means, okay? It's not teaching like some other denominations do that your children are covered under you. That's not, that's not gospel. Children are sinners just like we are. They have to come to Christ just like we do. They have to repent of their sins. They have to bow the knee before him as their Lord and Savior, believe that he is the Son of God who died on the cross, was buried, was raised again the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is making intercession for them and will return to take them home to heaven someday. This salvation, this gospel that we believe is individually accounted for, okay? So if you're a Christian, your family's not saved, they're not going to get to heaven on your coattails. But because you are there, God is at work. And it may very well be that your spouse, your children, your extended family, your co-workers, your neighbors, people around you that you have influence over, may also come to Christ because of your example. That's what this means. And we should take that seriously if you find yourself in that situation. And I know that if we took time for testimonies right now, there would be quite a few of you who could stand up and say, yep, that's what God did in my family. That's what God did to my relatives. That's what God did to my spouse. Verse 15 But if the unbelieving partner separates, divorces, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So the first scenario is spiritually mixed marriage. Because of the grace of God, the spouse becomes a follower of Jesus too. Praise God. The other scenario it may be The unbelieving partner may want out. And of course, the early, he, he, Paul's also said earlier that if the unbelieving partner wants to stay in the marriage, you're to stay in the marriage. 
But if the unbelieving partner wants out, this verse says, let them go. Don't try to force an unbelieving spouse. If they want out, let them go. Let her go. Let him go. Notice how Paul says the believer is not enslaved. They're not bound, is literally the word there, to keep things together at all costs. Spiritually mixed marriages many times will not work out. If they went out, let them go. And right at that point, notice how Paul speaks a word about God. Do you see it? He says, believer, God has called you to peace. And in saying that, he's not only advocating peace between them and the unbelieving spouse, He's reminding them of that situation in the big picture. Paul's saying, listen, you live before God. That's your reality. So when your spouse wants out and your heart is breaking because of that, you still have a foundation that is rock solid and firm. Because as important as your marriage is, your marriage is not your foundation. God is your foundation. And so we have to keep that big picture. He is our peace, not our marriage. Thirdly, and finally, we're going to jump down to the end of the chapter and cover the last two verses here, which speak about a third significant, particular, challenging situation. That's this, the ending of marriages by death. Look at verse 39 again. A wife is bound to her husband. That's the same word, by the way, that was just used in enslaved back in the earlier verse, in verse uh, 15. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. That's why when we, have, when we take marriage vows, traditional marriage vow says, till death we do part. Right? That's why we make that vow, because the Bible says that's how long marriage is to last. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Now Paul touched on this back in verse 8 when he mentioned widows. But there the emphasis was on singleness. Here the, the focus is on loss through death. And Paul reminds those who are married that marriage is a willing bond. It's a willing slavery, if you want to use that term. We willingly lock ourselves together, weld ourselves together all through life. But death will come. Rare is the marriage that ends with both spouses dying simultaneously does happen sometimes but 99 times out of 100 probably even more than that one of you will be sitting at the other's funeral what then after the initial grief after the realization of loneliness after the adjustments of lifestyle are made then what well If you are in Christ, then you will come to realize 
that your foundation is still under your feet. And it's still rock solid. Because it's Christ. And Paul says, then a widow is free to be married again. The same thing would apply to a widower. I think Paul's just honoring the percentages here. And if you're not convinced about those percentages, just visit any local nursing home. The ratio is remarkably imbalanced. Paul says the surviving spouse is free to remarry. And he's not just making some big grudging concession. There is real freedom when your spouse dies with one limitation, one God-honoring limitation. Paul says, only in the Lord. See that? In other words, you marry again, you're free to do that. But he has to be a believer. She has to be a believer. Notice what Paul says in verse 30, or 40, rather. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Now, I want you to notice the word happier. It doesn't say holier. It doesn't say she's more honorable. He says, I believe she will be happier. We have a number of widows and widowers in our church. This is a real topic for them. As you all know, my mom is going through this right now. We've talked about this several times already. Should she consider getting married again? Some remarry in their older years and have a wonderful second marriage. Some would like to, but God has not made that a reality. Others have found, as Paul suggests, happiness in their singleness as they serve God and serve others. Why does God, or why does Paul, the Lord, through Paul, suggest that singleness may be a happier prospect? Well, perhaps because we're more set in our ways as we get older, and learning to live with someone new can be very challenging. Sometimes it can be very frustrating. Or perhaps Paul's saying this because we can use that extra time and extra energy that we would otherwise have in our marriage to serve Christ and the church in ways that we could not before. Similarly to how he talked about singles before they marry for the first time, have the freedom to serve Christ and his church in ways that they would not have once they're married. Scripture is clear. Singleness or marriage after the loss of a spouse is allowed and can be for the glory of God either way. I'm going to ask the praise team to return for our final songs here and our leadership team if they'll come to the front to prepare for the Lord's table. While they're all coming, we're going to stand together and we're going to sing a song that puts our confidence and hope where it should be. We sing about the foundation that our life has, no matter what kind of situations we may face in our marriage or in our life. We, our, our confidence and our hope should be in the Lord, who is the Ancient of Days. And brothers and sisters, 
If our lives are anchored in the gospel, if they're anchored in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, it does not matter what situation we may find ourselves in, in life. It does not matter what the future brings. Our trust will stay rock solid and strong in the one who holds it all in his hands. And that's the overall message Paul has for us in our text this morning.